Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are back with a new episode of our podcast. I'm here with my co-host, uh, David Tainer and Kate Rika, and we have a special guest who we're going to uh, uh, get into a number of topics with. That's Carrie Antholis, uh, friend of the site and uh, editor and publisher of Crime Story. A uh, lot to talk about. We have, you know, uh, uh, the world continues to uh, untether and, and uh, fall apart before our eyes. Um, and uh, we're going to, so we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about the situation in Portland. And we're going to talk about stuff with Bill Barr, uh, Attorney General of the United States. And um, so many things are happening that uh, I'm not sure it's totally on everybody's radar, but he is going to be uh, testifying up on Capitol Hill next week. Um, And that's going so, you know, we already there were already a bunch of things that that. I guess mainly the Democrats in the House wanted to uh, uh, talk about, but but now we have even more with this with the the situation in Portland, which is which is largely being driven out of the Department of Homeland Security, but I think pretty clearly with the uh, uh, blessing and legal guidance of uh, the Department of Justice, and as we may get into. During this episode, the issue there is there are things there are things about how the Department of Homeland Security was set up back in 2002 that make it an easier vehicle for doing what is now happening in Portland. It's got a bunch of different policing agencies. They have these weird overlapping mandates that just make it much easier than if you say, oh, we're going to send in the FBI or, you know, it, again, it's it, it's the logical place to uh, to do it from. In any case, uh, before we go any further, uh, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the, of the Josh Marshall podcast. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans-style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself bean bags ship directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's bean bag products. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, you can also purchase it at Amazon.com or at your local grocery store. So, David, what do we got? All right. So, before we get into uh, 
the situation in Portland and and Bill Barr and all the surrounding issues uh, with that. Uh, I thought, Carrie, maybe we could start with you a little bit as a as a California resident. You know, we're so East Coast focused on this podcast, usually just kind of curious to get a bit of a sense of what the coronavirus situation is looking out there. I saw uh, this morning before we started recording, the Associated Press had an alert up that said there were something like 409,000 confirmed cases in California, which is more than I think it broke the record that New York had set. And uh, also yesterday, the U.S., Past, I think a thousand COVID deaths for the first time in July. So, lots kind of happening on that front. And almost first time in in June. There was the the last time there was over a thousand on a day was there was I got in a, in a uh, Nate Silver had May twenty ninth. I had June second. Some of that is uh, sometimes there's backlogs and stuff like that. But in any case, the key point is it's it's more than six weeks since there's been a number that high. Yeah. So, Carrie, yeah, I'm just curious, uh, give us maybe like a, a scene report or your kind of, you know, personal experience uh, of how things are going out there, what what it's looking like on the ground. Everybody's very aware of it, obviously. There's a, a general sense that we're back in a essentially a shutdown mode. Restaurants that had been open for indoor service have now gone exclusively outdoor. Even that is kind of tenuous. Um, And the court system, which has been, which is kind of my beat with crime story, has been, you know, deeply affected by all of this. And trials, which were, you know, they were going to start jury selection on on trials. Um, They postponed that, I think. And, you know, I'm covering the Robert Durst trial for Crime Story and for a new podcast that I have called Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. And um, just last Friday, the judge in that case, well, the prosecutor in that case, suggested that they keep the jury that they have because it will be impossible to seat 12 jurors and 11 alternates in anything less than six months. They keep the jury they have, but they postpone beginning the trial again until April of 2021. So that would be over a year since the trial actually started, and six years since Durst was indicted in uh, in, in the murder of his friend Susan Berman. Not, not that I'm not that I'm terribly worried about him, but how does how does the right to a speedy trial figure into this? Well, I mean, it's a huge issue in the rest of California, but for Durst, he's currently incarcerated on federal charges stemming from possession of a fire a felon in possession of a firearm when he was arrested in um, in New Orleans back in 2015, and so he's. At, at a minimum, he's still under the in the custody of the federal government until 2021, uh, you know, sometime in 2021 anyway. But it's a big issue. And the state of California has essentially suspended their version of habeas corpus statutes in order to accommodate all of the backlog that's happened since COVID. And so there are a lot of people, I mean, they've let a lot of people go and uh, uh, they've released a lot of people who were un, 
under who were charged with nonviolent offenses. Um, we've covered this kind of extensively at on Crime Story, um, but you know it's a real problem for people who are accused of you know a quote unquote violent crime and who want their due process rights. They don't want a plea bargain. They want to go to trial, and yet you know they 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 can't get a jury. And 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 have the courts been generally accepted that suspension as just a a necessary thing to do under the present circumstances? The chief justice of the California Supreme Court has essentially made made that order, and the presiding judges in the various regions, Los Angeles County being among them, have followed on. Yes, like it's by by necessity. Right. Okay. The the one other thing that they offered Durst parenthetically is that they also offered him the opportunity to have to waive his right to a jury trial and to have just a judge trial, which I think you'll see that offer being made to a lot of defendants. Uh, you know, basically just have a bench trial where the judge dis- decides fact and law rather than just adjudicates on law. It isn't there. That's generally like. That that is generally not something that you just like. Oh, okay, sure, I'll take that other option. I mean, that's generally. I mean, there are certain kind of defendants who really want a bench trial, and certain kinds of defendants that it's insane to get a bench trial. Often lining up with, I mean, you know, sometimes who's popular and who's not, but other times who's guilty and who's not. Yeah, I mean, in this case, my guess is that the Durst stands. A marginally better chance with a jury, but the jury in this case... He's not a terribly sympathetic defendant. Yeah, and and it's a West Side (laughs) L.A. jury that is kind of less skeptical of law enforcement and less, um, especially when it's, you know, Robert Durst. And, you know, people, many of the jurors had heard of the Durst trial before, even those that survived the voir dire. So it... You know, but but by the same token, the judge has made while while bending over backwards to be polite to the defense and to praise their work. You know, uh, he routinely rules against them in you know fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment motions for you know to exclude evidence or to mistry the case. So uh, I I don't know. Um, you know, it, it depends on whether Durst wants the kind of drama of the trial to happen now or whether he wants it to wait until the spring. You know, there's a good argument for him wanting to do it now while everybody's under lockdown and the judge will likely televise the trial, allow the trial to be televised, where he whereas before the pandemic, he was only allowing audio recordings of the trial. Um, So, you know, Durst may want to see himself on TV and that, that may be a reason he accepts a bench trial. Interesting. Uh, So, Kate, to shift gears a little bit, um, I wanted to talk about some reporting that you and our colleague Matt Shuham have done over the last several days and maybe over the course of about a week, which is related to the CDC. I mean, the Trump administration basically foregoing kind of an official public uh, database of COVID data and using a a private company based in Pittsburgh called Teletracking, right? And company that was really not on anyone's radar, it seems like, never had a big government contract, um, 
maybe about 300 employees. I guess they're trying to scale up now to do this. But tell us kind of the backstory of this and, and why some experts are, are alarmed about the move. Yeah, so the whole switch was kind of fishy from the beginning. You know, the the HHS announced that hospitals that had previously been funneling their information in through the CDC would have to switch to teletracking. Uh, you know, they posted that on their website on June 10th, and the switch would have to be made by June 15th. So I think that raised a lot of, um, you know, antennae there from the beginning. And then as Matt and I looked into this company, you know, the rationale for switching to them just remained elusive. You know, like the HHS touted teletracking system as more efficient and streamlined, um, kind of complaining that the CDC system was antiquated and slow and clunky. But both systems use manual input of data, so it's not apparently clear how teletracking would be any faster than the CDC, which then kind of brought up a lot of concerns from people um, you know, about the transparency piece. The CDC has a longstanding um, you know, dedication to public transparency of the data, that, and that standard isn't established with this private company. And for those who already are pretty hesitant to take this administration at its word when it comes to COVID-related things, you know, that raises fears that the HHS is going to spin the data, distort the data, you know, only show things on the public-facing um, dashboard that they want to. And then kind of coupled with that, you have the fact that it's not apparently evident that teletracking is even well poised to do this work, you know, taking out the malicious dark possibilities they're just not a huge company this isn't their bed and uh, their bread and butter is tracking hospital bed occupancy for hospitals um you know not exactly what they'd be doing now they've never had such a big government contract before everything has been you know in the four or five digit range and now this contract is for 10.2 million dollars um like you mentioned dt they only have 300 employees so you know it's not there's nothing when you look at this company that would make you feel like oh well you know that makes sense they're they're well poised to do this work their capacity questions scale questions ability questions and then kind of a haze of around all this is the weird secrecy elements. You know, why did the HHS make this switch so quietly and abruptly? You know, why has teletracking talked to nearly no one in addition to not touting the fact that they got this big high profile bid at all, you know, not even a press release or anything. So, you know, that there are just a lot of questions kind of hovering around this situation um, and, you know, to some degree, time will tell, you know, what happens if teletracking is able to, uh, handle the, the influx of, of data, but, you know, in the immediate short term, you are also asking thousands of hospitals to switch to a new system while, as we, you know, alluded to earlier, lots of places in the country are seeing huge spikes. So, and is it, is it? Sorry to cut you yeah, off, Kate. Is it no. true that teletracking had about a thousand hospitals in its system or network, right? And that's right. that's of you know something of a little more than six thousand hospitals in the country, right? So it's kind of a, a sort of a small slice of the overall I don't know hospital picture in the mm -hmm. country too, right? And the CDC specifically was handling about three thousand of those hospitals, their COVID data. So 
yeah, I mean, already that's a scale up. And to our knowledge, teletracking has said that they are adding a couple dozen people to their workforce, but I don't know. Can a, a couple dozen people handle 2,000 new hospitals? You know, I don't know. Right. Um, and then you had written sort of a follow-up piece kind of explaining just, uh, was it the word black box? Someone was mm -hmm. describing the kind of the, this new data operation. Tell us kind of, you know, a little bit about what some experts were saying about this switch and kind of the potential problems it could could expose. Right. I mean, so you have tele the teletracking piece in place of the CDC, which makes a lot of people nervous. And then on top of that, the way that they're kind of touting what they call HHS Protect, which is this the umbrella project of the HHS to take in COVID data and, you know, track it, model it, present it to the public. That is being described by them as an, an ecosystem of eight different commercial technologies, all which have a piece of this process. And that's including players like Palantir, who built some of the storage and um, analytic capabilities that the HHS is using. Um, and so, you know, I think it just makes people nervous, the idea that so many of these commercial technologies have their hands in it, so much that the administration does not have a really good track record of being very honest about this pandemic. I mean, you had Trump, what, the other day saying it's just going to disappear and always saying we'll have less, fewer cases if we do fewer tests. So that whole ecosystem just seems kind of primed for abuse of the data or spinning of the data, or at least giving an administration that these experts don't have a lot of faith in more room to do that without having the stopgap of the CDC involved. Right. Um, do you have any sense of where that story goes next? Is it just kind of a matter of seeing what the what the public facing data ends up looking like or seeing, you know, more anecdotal reports about the company, how it's handling the, the data and so on? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, it that's kind of the scary thing. It's going to be a trial by fire for this company to see if they can, you know, if they can handle it. But the problem is not a lot of people are going to have access to the data. So it might be hard to tell if there's spin or distortion going on, because right now the only people with access to the raw data are going to be government workers or contractors that have passes from their uh, you know, agencies or companies. So that's kind of a way that the administration can keep a fairly tight rein on who gets access to it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just going to be a matter of, you know, seeing what happens, seeing if hospitals report, you know, inability to report the data or if the data starts to look fishy or if these giant spikes suddenly subside, you know, that right. kind of thing. But it's, yeah, it's becoming much more difficult, I think, for like the watchdog contingent, um, with all these kind of firewalls put up. Sure. Uh, and so to, sh to shift gears once again, Josh, you, you've been covering in the, in the blog a lot lately, the situation unfolding in Portland, Oregon. I think about a week and a half ago, we saw some of the most kind of immediately disturbing images of unidentified federal officers whisking people away into unmarked vans just off the streets of Portland. And um, some, you know, many of our listeners might be aware of this, but um, for those who aren't, these protests in Portland have stemmed from the, you know, the killing of George Floyd uh, over Memorial Day. Obviously, those protests spread around the country to many major cities and even smaller kind of mid-tier cities. But they've really been continuing in Portland, you know, at a somewhat sustained level 
beyond, I guess, what, you know, the New Yorks and Minneapolis's and Washington DCs have. And you've heard a lot of, I don't know, just anecdotal kind of information from readers about the situation unfolding there. Tell us some of the, some of the reader emails that have jumped out to you and kind of what, what you've noticed happening there. Well, there's, there's, um, the, the point you make is exactly right on, uh, it's not, it's not the only place where this has happened, but pretty distinct from this trajectory in the rest of the country, this started hot in Portland and it's really continued pretty much every day since the, uh, I believe George Floyd was, was killed on the 25th of May. And as we know, protests started in that last week of May and spread around the country. Um, and they, it, they started off very big in Portland and over time kind of ground down to a, a smaller group of protesters, um, more militant protesters, more, you know, more vandalism, throwing objects at police and stuff like that. And then the, when the, uh, the feds came in that sort of reignited it and the protests got much bigger. They got, you know, a much bigger cross section of, of, of the public. But the things that are, that are, um, interesting and sort of helpful to me to understanding what's happening there is two, two things that long precede George Floyd's murder. And that is that in Portland, you have this pattern that in some ways you saw in Minneapolis, which is a case where you have a city that is perceived, you know, more or less rightly as a pretty progressive city, very, you know, democratic city, uh, Minneapolis, especially Portland. And yet both of these cities have police departments that are, you know, depending on how you want to see it, uh, a reactionary police department, you know, police departments that there is a, a long standing tension between the police department and the, and the community. And, um, from the outside, a lot of us see these cases and think, well, you know, you have a kind of a pretty progressive city, you know, kind of under democratic management for a long time you'd think you'd have a police force that is a little more integrated, a little more, you know, a little more focused on de-escalation and stuff like that. And, but clearly that is not the case. And you have these communities where you have this kind of pattern. So it's like, it's like Minneapolis in that sense. So there's a long standing issue there with the, uh, it's called the police bureau, um, in Portland. So, so pre-existing tension that goes way back. And then something some of our listeners may be familiar with, that there has been this pattern over the last, I, I sort of lose track about how long it goes back, but certainly at least two or three years, maybe even longer, where you have uh, relatively frequent confrontations, often planned between um, white nationalist gangs slash proud boys, which is one of these, you know, one of these kind of, uh, uh, white supremacist groups that comes in with shields and body armor, you know, kind of Charlottesville kind of stuff. And Portland has been the scene repeatedly of cases where, you know, Proud Boys announce we're going to we're going to come into Portland and, and make a showing. And then you have Antifa types who come in to counter protest and there's protesting and people fight and all that kind of stuff. So that has happened again and again in Portland. 
and it has it has certainly created a cadre of kind of antifa you know kind of professional protesters who are out in force there and that has i think to an extent created the core group that is you know that that has continued the protests in in, in portland sort of and and i think that is a fact regardless of how you see the different players that is just sort of an uh, uh, you know an operational fact and bringing these two stories together is when those you know proud boys slash white supremacist versus antifa confrontations were happening there were long standing suspicions and some evidence that the police were at least passively kind of siding with the proud boys types you know kind of coordinating with them uh being you know being more violent towards the antifa people than the all that kind of stuff so all of these things have played into this uh this situation in the city and it seemed to be winding down uh to some extent the police were you know, they were doing more kind of de trying to do more de-escalation stuff and really trying to, as much as they could, separate the, and, and in practice, I think these are seldom truly red line distinctions, but separate the protesters, people who are there to, to peacefully protest, uh, police violence, racist, systemic racism, etc., and people who were there, who were, who were consistently, uh, vandalizing things, you know, uh, doing low level violence against the police, you know, throwing water bottles and stuff like that. And that seemed to be having some success. And then the feds came in and everything kind of, you know, uh, blew up again, which as we've been discussing on the site, I think is basically by design. President Trump sees it as in his political interests to uh, provoke these, you know, quote unquote, law and order confrontations between, you know, muscly federal agents in body armor and, you know, white 20 somethings in ninja outfits. Right. And that that's just like that's that's that works for him. So that's that's kind of where we are. And. Carrie, you had interviewed Bill Barr just about exactly a year ago. And, you know, as Josh mentioned, this is mostly DHS officers, it seems like. Um, so it's not as if Bill Barr is necessarily giving the order. But we did see, you know, some pretty deep bar involvement in the Lafayette Park clearing of protesters in Washington, D.C. So Trump could go across the street and awkwardly kind of wave around a Bible. So what what about your kind of, you know, interactions with Barr might help listeners kind of understand, you know, just the kind of broader administration approach or, um, you know, strategy in these, in these cases where, you know, it's not just Portland, they're, they're sending federal forces in, you know, the Trump administration is threatening the same in Chicago and uh, Kansas City and all these kind of other cities to sort of make a show of force. Um, well, as Josh said, Barr is smart enough to to at least recognize that there are boundaries that the Justice Department has to respect. And so I think, as he, as he said, it's kind of by design that it's been delegated to DHS. 
and its much looser set of restrictions. Um, but my experience with with bar, as I've reflected upon it, has um, you know it's changed in my perspective as I've observed his um, tenure as attorney general and as um, as I've read more about his past and his background, and I've I've processed that uh, in light of the things that I observed about him. Um, <clears throat> so, just to kind of recap for everyone, um, on June fifth, two thousand nineteen, I went to the Justice Department to interview Barr. Um, on the one year anniversary of the interview, I wrote a uh, I wrote him a letter basically touching base on several of the points that we discussed that were particularly resonant. On June 5th, we were only, we were, I think, less than two weeks out from the death of George Floyd. The protests were in high gear. And so, and, and there were a number of questions that I touched upon in my interview with him that were even more resonant and relevant Today, at that moment than they were when I first asked them. Um, but first, before I get into that letter and reviewing, you know, w- w- what those points are, let me just go back and set the stage for the interview a little bit. So I knew Bill Barr because I used to work at HBO. Um, HBO was a Time Warner company before AT&T owned it. Bill Barr was on the board of Time Warner. And I was introduced to him at a dinner uh, that uh, was essentially a, a social between board members and senior executives, particularly senior creative executives at HBO. And I was introduced to Barr because part of my remit, in addition to miniseries like Chernobyl, was the kind of more action-oriented series that were on Cinemax, which HBO also owns. And one of those shows was a show called Banshee. And I was, as I was introduced to Barr, he told me I'm a huge fan, that he was a huge fan of Banshee. And Banshee is, was like, it, 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 we did four seasons of the show. It's a really kind of pulpy, um, somewhat Tarantino-esque, somewhat Coen Brothers-esque, looked at a small town where a guy who's... Uh, a, a thief, professional thief, who's just come out of 15 years in prison through a series of very violent circumstances, um, ends up assuming the identity of a dead sheriff that nobody in the town has ever seen. He, he was just coming into town. And so he beca- this, this crook becomes the thief of the town. And, I mean, I'm sorry, this crook becomes the sheriff of the town. And in you know he's dealing with this gangster run town and the gang that's running the town is this uh is 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 run by this lapsed Amish guy who um is also affiliated with white supremacists is affiliated with uh, a, a senator a United States senator who's also affiliated with the white supremacists and on top of all of that there are Ukrainian gangsters involved in the story as well so it's got a lot of elements that would kind of foreshadowed what we would all be experiencing today in any event Barr was a fan of the show 
And um, so someone suggested that we go together to visit the set. So I ended up spending a full day with Bill Barr flying down to North Carolina hang where we were shooting the show and hanging out with him. And um, and we also were joined by the chief counsel of Time Warner, a guy named Paul Capuccio, who brought Barr onto the board at Time Warner, as I understand it, and worked for Barr when Barr was attorney general in the early 90s in the Justice Department. So they go back that far. Um, and so, uh, you know, when, when, when I started CrimeStory.com, I asked Barr for an interview, and to my surprise, he agreed to do it. Um, I went there at 3, you know, my meeting with him was at 3.30, in the afternoon on June 5th, and um, uh, I was greeted, you know, I went through security, I went to the fifth floor to his office, I was greeted by one of his deputies, a guy named John Moran, and then we were escorted back to the AG's office, we sat down, we made some chit-chat, and um, then I asked if it was okay if I pulled out my tape recorder and recorded the interview. Um, and Barr looked at me as if he was perplexed. And he said, well, I don't really do recorded interviews. And I was very explicit in the um, email with him that I wanted to do this for a podcast. And so I said, well, it's going to be kind of hard to do a podcast if I can't record the interview. And he sort of looks at me and then deadpans looking at Moran, who joined us for the interview but didn't talk. And he says to Moran, well, if we don't like what he does, we can always Khashoggi him. And <laughs> then they started, they both started laughing. And I, I kind of nervously laughed. And I said, I, I, I the, the, the thing that occurred to me to say, which is what I said, was I've never heard the man's name used as a verb before. Now, 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 Carrie, how, uh, remind us, so this is a little more than a year ago. How long, how long after Khashoggi's murder? I think it was six or seven months, that? something like that. I think uh, Khashoggi was killed in, I think it was October of 18. Is that, is that right? Um, yeah, I, I I think that sounds right. Uh, yeah, October uh, October second, twenty eighteen. So this is so the point is this is and 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 as we all remember, it didn't you know we didn't know what happened on day one. It took a week or so, maybe a couple weeks, before people realized that he was dead. That you know yes. that he wasn't just missing or in a jail cell in Saudi Arabia, and then it. It was a pretty protracted, yeah, pretty protracted process before people realized, like, okay, they went into the, you know, went into the embassy, he was killed in the embassy. So a lot of this, this was still a pretty current story and what the U.S. would do about it um, at the time you're talking about, which is June 2019. This isn't like not ancient history. You know, part of Barr's vibe is he... He's very kind of informal in many ways. It's his natural kind of affect. And so 
it was also in the context of us, you know, bonding over this very violent, very kind of adult only show that was full of violence and sex. And and so it wasn't uh, kind of out of character for him to be jocular about it. But it did surprise me that in his office as attorney general and in his kind of role, you know, in his consciousness of that role, that he would be so kind of he would joke so cavalierly. Um, Let's just leave it at that. Wasn't this also this was this was also in the period when it was a very um, live question what what the U.S. would do about it? Like like, you know, after it was clear that um, that Khashoggi was dead, that he had been killed by uh, Saudi security service operatives in this embassy in, uh, I guess it was, it was in Ankara, not Istanbul, right? In Ankara or wherever it was in Turkey, um, that, okay, what's the consequences? Is, is there going to be, is this going to be an issue in the, in the, in the U S Saudi relationship? Is the U S going to say, all right, this, this, uh, MBS guy's got to go. And so, and, and, and obviously, um, that question was still kind of outstanding at the time. The U.S. was dealing with this as a very live issue, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly, it didn't seem resolved to me. Uh, you know, no one, I don't think that by that point the Saudis had done their kind of show trials. Um, although I, I, I'd, I'd have to check the dates on that. But um, but it it was in keeping with the kind of nature of my dialogue with him and and mm-hmm. when you know when i saw the reports of his meeting with berman that kind of went completely south and resulted in that kind of standoff over the weekend where berman wasn't going to resign um i i was reminded of barr's demeanor in his in my at the beginning of my meeting with him before the recording device started. Now, <clears throat> just, you know, a kind of word on what I ultimately agreed to um, with Barr, that I would publish, um, that, that uh, you know, the only parts of the recorded interview that I would publish were the parts that he got a look at. He got a look at a transcript. He didn't get to hear the recording, and that he. I worked through John Moran, his deputy, and uh, and Barr approved certain things and asked me to remove certain things. And so those were the kind of terms of the podcast recording that I played. Um, and uh, but 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 you know there. When I re- went to write the letter to him on the one year anniversary, I, I, you know, I was kind of startled by the fact that there were these three things that popped out at me. And then one other thing that kind of was related to the other three things. Um, and, and they were, um, number one, I, I asked him, I picked up on a question that was asked during his confirmation hearings about the fact that he was unfamiliar with the notion of implicit bias in law enforcement. Um, and so I asked him whether he'd become familiar with it and whether he had any thoughts about it. 
And his response was, yes, but I'm not going to get into that question. So I asked him one year later whether he would be willing in the wake of the death of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor, um, whether he'd be willing to get into that question now. Um, The second was this idea of the Ferguson effect. Um, He'd written a letter with Ed Meese and one other former attorney general talking about this thing called the Ferguson effect, which is the idea, as these are his words, that if police feel that they're going to be unfairly treated or unjustly disciplined for something they feel was a righteous act of self-defense, and there'd be what they feel is unfair Monday morning quarterbacking, then they will not take those risks. They will not risk. They will not confront crime where they think it can put them in danger. The biggest losers of that can be people in high crime neighborhoods. And I asked him to reflect on that in the wake of the death of George Floyd. By the way, I I never received a response to any of these questions. And it's been almost two months now since I uh, six weeks since I sent the email. The third question was kind of related to the whole, you know, his reference to Dirty Harry uh, in the interview. And that was his 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 comments about a sense of justice. Uh, he said, I believe a sense of justice is hardwired into human beings. Don't ask me why, but it's there and it's satisfying to see justice done. And we feel angry when we see injustice that isn't rectified. And I asked him, how would you relate that sense of justice and the anger when we see injustice that isn't res- rectified to the recent events? And then finally, I asked him about Antifa um, and his reference to Antifa in his statement about the unrest that happened in the wake of George Floyd. And I asked him why he didn't make reference to the Boogaloo Boys, uh, who are this loosely affiliated movement that Nick Martin, among others, have been reporting on recently, that, you know, Boogaloo Boys members were part of, um, were, were arrested by the United States government and charged by the United States government of being involved with uh, unrest in Las Vegas, they were also, um, there was a guy who was a part of that movement who killed two law enforcement officials, one uh, uh, from Santa Cruz uh, Sheriff's Office and the other a Department of Justice official. And um, and they've been making their presence felt uh, throughout this unrest. And I asked him wh- why he hadn't cited them. Now, the one other thing that I'll say is that the other thing that I came upon in reading about Barr in light of all of these events is that there's a guy named Jimmy Lohman who grew up in New York, but he's now a, a death row defense attorney in Austin, Texas. Um, and he grew up with Barr. He went to middle school, high school, and college with Barr. He went to Horace Mann in New York, and then he went to Columbia. And um, he wrote a piece back in 1991 in a small publication in, um, in Tallahassee, Florida, about how Barr was a, a bully, a fascist, and a lifelong racist. Um, and then just last month, uh, in June of 2020, he wrote a follow-up piece in The Daily Beast following up on that and um, talking about how Barr, when he was a kid, 
would bully him because he wore a racial equality button to school, starting in middle school. And Barr would call him a pinko. He and his friends would intimidate him. That accelerated in high school. And by the time they got, by the time they were at Columbia, um, according to Jimmy Lohman, Barr earned a reputation at Columbia for teaming up with riot police to attack anti-war protesters and quote unquote beat heads right alongside them. So it it what what it strikes me as is that this this is you know whereas initially I thought Barr was an institutionalist and uh, you know because of some things he said about respect for the office of attorney general trying to restore dignity and pride to that office I thought he would be much more of a proceduralist. But as it turns out, as Paul Butler said in an interview I did with him after the Barr interview, it turns out William Barr is essentially an instrumentalist. He sees the the law and justice and the process of justice as both a, sh- a sword and a shield for uh, the presidents that he agrees with. It's not something, you know, it's not something that he believes is um, is 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 inherent in the presidency. It's inherent in the presidents that he agrees with. Like that. That's my perspective after kind of doing a deep dive into Bill Barr, who he is, what his actions have been, and um, how he perceives his role uh, as Donald Trump's Attorney General. How do you? How do you? How does this all play into, or what is your sense of how this all plays into the stuff we've seen since uh, Lafayette Park? You know, where he took. We we know that he seems to have taken a very direct role in that stunt incident, whatever you want to call it. Sort of tried to back. You know, tried to wash his hands of it a bit after everything you know, after everything fell apart um, and seems to be giving his blessing to the stuff uh, now with this kind of federal task force of, of monument protection that is that is the, 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 the peg that they're using to send these uh, ICE uh, squads to, to different cities. I mean, how, how do these how do you see these playing together? Well, you know, in in the interview that I did with him, he he d- makes the distinction between the process of justice and justice as an outcome, and um, it it seems he's very outcome oriented, but you know he goes to some pains, although kind of with some diminishing level of returns, some pains to make sure that the process is at least covered by a fig leaf of jurisprudence and the rule of law. Um, and so I think he, pro- I mean, my my guess would be that he's a part of the conversation about delegating a lot of this stuff to agencies that have, that are much less restricted in the way that they enforce law. It was interesting. One of the people that objected to, um, Chad Wolf's use of uh, Border Patrol agents was the U.S. attorney in 
Oregon, in Portland. And I guess it's in Portland, but, you know, the the U.S. attorney for the state of Oregon. And, you know, it's interesting that a member of Barr's own Justice Department objected to this. Um, but, But the proper place for these kinds of protests is the IG office in DHS. And and so what I think I, I would be surprised if Barr wasn't a part of the conversations about how you do this without running into constitutional problems. Yeah. And so, Terry, I, I understand you're you're working on a piece for TPM that our listeners uh, can hopefully find on this site relatively soon, kind of reflecting on all of this. Is that right? Yeah, I'm. I'm working on a. Um, I, I wrote a piece for Crime Story, basically offering context to the letter that I wrote Barr. But what I'm going to do in in the piece for TPM is reflect a little bit more specifically on on what I've learned about Barr, in you know over the course of observing him, over the course of uh, you know since since I interviewed him, which I didn't really do as part of that, uh, you know that piece about the letter. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll present some of the stuff. Uh, I'll present some of the stuff that um, that I learned, particularly from reading the Jimmy Lohman pieces from 1991 and then from last month. And also my reflections on on my interactions with Barr in the context of 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 Lohman's memories. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, hopefully as as our listeners hear this podcast, we'll be able to find the uh the piece up on TPM as well. But I think that's, that's about all the time we have this week. Yeah. Is there, what, what do we, what do we see, David, your followers each day? What, what, what do we, what do we think is going to happen it, it, like next in Portland? I've seen stuff in Chicago and stuff like that. Is this expanding to other cities? It seems like, you know, anywhere that has maybe a liberal bent that is run by a either a Democratic mayor or a state under Democratic control is is potentially ripe for the Trump's goon squads. Basically, I think um, you know, similar to the in the way that we've seen Trump restart these coronavirus briefings, he's staring down electoral defeat and is trying to find some way to to get an upper hand. And and like you say, Josh, this sort of show of law and order is one way to do that. His uh, I guess he can't do the rallies anymore, so the coronavirus briefings is one way for him to get in front of camera. So I think it's it's just sort of throwing a bunch of red meat against the wall and seeing what sticks. Right, right. Well, uh, remember, everyone, that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Uh, you can order it online at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can get 20% off if it's your first order. And you can also pick it up uh, at your local grocery store or order it at Amazon.com. All right. Carrie, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody. Kate, Kate and Josh, talk to you soon. All right. Later.